Well, we're happy to have John Jinks with us. He is the Vice President of um, Training and the Director of Intentional Discipleship Ministries with Baptist Church Planters. So if you'd come now, you can tell them a little bit more about what you do and preach the word. I think we have a slide that's coming. I may have pushed the wrong button. It's thinking. <clears throat> well, I'm thrilled to be here with you today and uh, share a little bit. I want to introduce my family. I really didn't do that. Just talked about my wife in Sunday school a little bit. And uh, but these, this family is just so important behind what we're doing and how we work together. And so we have three children, Jennifer and I. We've been married 27 years, and uh, I pastored at Calvary Baptist Church for 25 years, and uh, they took me on as a student pastor for 10 months, 10 and a half months, then I became an assistant pastor, and in the year 2000, I became the lead pastor, church of about 260 families, and uh, our goal was to disciple people so that God could make impact through our church across the whole globe. And we're a church in the middle of nowhere. Matter of fact, when I went there as a student pastor, my friends in seminary said, you're going to the backside of the moon. And uh, that's kind of true, and I like it back there, just so you know. Um, it's quiet. No one bugs us. But if you come to see me, you came on purpose where we live, and that included family. We found out who our friends were uh, because you don't accidentally pass through the area. And it's a beautiful area of cranberries and uh, potatoes, and it stinks because we have five paper mills in our town on the Wisconsin River, the hardest working river in America with 31 paper mills on the Wisconsin River. And, uh, and so we are a poor town because none of you use paper anymore. You all have your Bible even on the phone, right? And uh, so before the economy crashed in whatever, 2008, it was already crashing in our town because paper is, is going away. And so that affected our church. We actually lost 100 people to job transfers in about three and a half years. And, uh, and so that forced us, and nobody was moving to the area because there were no jobs. So if the church is going to grow and be make impact, we want to make missions impact around the globe, then we better be used of God to meet our neighbors, lead them to Christ, and to see, you're good now? And to see uh, people, <clears throat> no, that's not the right, no. Maybe you help him, Pastor. I think you, you had it up earlier today, maybe. <laughs> and if not, we'll just quit that and I can, I can handle it. Um, so we wanted to reach people. And, and, you know, God blessed us. God replaced those individuals over the course of five years. And we had, I had times I was preaching to 25 lost people on a Sunday morning. And that's awesome. They didn't know the Bible at all because people today don't. People don't grow up in church. They're not a part of that. Um, and people don't, don't just walk into church very much anymore. You have to go meet them and lead them to Christ, and then church makes sense because our culture has changed. And if I get to come back someday, I may share a little bit more about that. So our family's been a part of that. Obviously, all of our children are cheeseheads. They were all born in Wisconsin. My wife's from Pennsylvania. I'm from New York, but we have three cheeseheads. And Rob is married to Alyssa, and Rob is a deputy uh, in the county south of us, a patrol deputy uh, for the sheriff's department. He just dealt with one of your Iowa people uh, whose truck full of cattle laid over on the side of the road. It was not a happy call the other night uh, for the cattle. And then, uh, uh, so my wife, Jennifer, and then uh, Joshua is a senior at Cedarville University. He's a business major. And uh, 
he has a job offer from the Air Force to work as a civilian in supply chain management, and he's pretty excited about that. And uh, Abigail is a sophomore at Cedarville. She's a early childhood education major and uh, with a TESOL certificate, teaching English as a second language. Hopes to do that in the urban setting or overseas. She's very daring, and uh, I, I like her a lot. Uh, she's high power. She actually uh, is the regional director for Child Evangelism Fellowship. Can you believe that? As a college student. And so she manages Central Wisconsin from her dorm room at Cedarville. Uh, all, the, all the young people that will serve during the summer. She encourages them, trains them, recruits them. And uh, so we're excited about the work that she's doing. Um, so that's a little bit about our family and kind of where we've been. Our church has sent 26 people into full-time ministry since the year 2000. Our goal is just, God, would you give us one person? We don't pray big prayers. We just pray the same one. God, send a, give us the ability to send one person into full-time ministry every year. That doesn't sound like a huge prayer, right? And, and it really, today's message is me looking at you saying, will you ask God to enable you to lead one person to him this year and to disciple one person? Just pray simple, simple prayers like that. It seems really fitting, you'll see in the word today, that that would be our prayer. And that's what God uses to grow his church. I'm a part of Baptist Church Planners. I said some of this in Sunday school, but we just exist to facilitate churches like yours to do what God wants you to do. We don't command or you know, we have no control in a church. We just come to assist to help you put pieces together in your discipleship ministry because the local church needs to be strengthened so missionaries go out because mission agencies don't send missionaries. Colleges don't send missionaries. Missionaries are sent by you. And so it's, it's just a natural outflow of if you're training people, there will be extras that God is going to intend for you to send somewhere. Um, it may just be down the street to start another church, or it may be, who knows, around the globe or in some ministry. BCP does that through a number of different types of ministries to facilitate what local church is doing. We have a ministry to, with Hispanic churches. Matter of fact, I'm a part of a Hispanic church plant in Wisconsin right now. So whenever I'm home, I'm a part of that. It's an extension of our church. It's uh, about 25 minutes from our home church. So I'm helping them. We have a new ministry called Intentional Transitional Ministry, where when a church pastor resigns, we have uh, men that we're training to come in with their wives and pastor that church for six months to a year as that church looks for a pastor. So that Because you know what happens sometimes when you lose a pastor, if there's not a transition, then you lose a pastor, you can lose people and momentum and direction. And then you, a new pastor comes, which is a great thing, and it takes like five years to lose what was lost or to gain what was lost in a year and a half or two years during pastoral search. So this helps a church stay even, stay after their mission, maybe come to peace if there's been issues. And it's a very challenging ministry. We just had our first church that we've done this in call their, first, their pastor uh, last week. Super excited. A unanimous vote. Uh, to call their next pastor. We're, and this is a church whose pastor died in some difficult situations that they went through. And, uh, and God has just healed that place. And I, I think a lot about Marty, our missionary who was working there. Um, you see other ministries like helping churches build, helping train teachers and supply curriculum that is very low cost because BCP really wants to help the smaller church be able to do its mission well. And I, I'm not going to take time. I want to preach this morning. So just maybe a couple other ideas. If you think about facilitating, we kind of facilitate in three ways. One is counsel. 
And it's the, it's the least invasive. It's just people call and ask for help. And we have different people in our ministry that have different areas they work. And we give counsel and walk alongside of pastors. And uh, we just do that because people support us so we can do that. There's no cost. We just It just happens. And then a guide is where, like in my ministry, I might come alongside a church and help them establish a training ministry. And uh, they pay a little bit of a fee. And we have rules between each other so that, you know, the mission agency doesn't invade the church in a wrong way. And we have just kind of a little bit more of a formal relationship to make sure things are done biblically. And then lastly is a lead situation where your church might send someone to plant a church and we help facilitate them to do that. And we want to have pretty strict rules so that that church planner has protection, you know, and people around them to help them. And at the same time, that wherever they're planning a church, that those people have protection. Because when you're not in a church, when you're not a church yet, you don't have the natural protections that God's built into a church. And so when you're starting, you have to be very careful how you do some of those things. So we lead in situations like that, um, facilitating really a church like yours to plan a church. Now, some of you might look at me and say, we're too small to plan a church. Um, I, I've read the Bible cover to cover. It never says how big your church must be to plan a church. My dad pastors a church plant in Nebraska right now. Uh, my dad's in his 70s. He's pastoring a, a church plant that's right now probably running 65 people, and they have a church plant of 25 the next town over. My dad preaches both places on Sunday morning, and uh, obviously there are people trained to do Sunday school both places and to lead, and, uh, and he's having a ball. Uh, in his later years, pastoring and doing what God wants. So you never know what vision God might have for, for your local body right here. It's just natural for God's churches to give birth. Lastly, and I showed a slide like this in Sunday school, my main part of my ministry is to help churches establish intentional development of people, spiritual development of people plans. The red denotes, you didn't see that on the slide in Sunday school, but that denotes where we have also trained ladies who are training ladies. Um, in, in discipleship or leadership. And so the first four churches that we worked with now have each a church that they're working with. And now that I've been with BCP, I have other trainers who help me, and we have these churches plus a number of more that are like that. And we actually right now have eight churches that are in revitalization in one form or another. So God, even since this slide was made, he just keeps multiplying that. I talked about this in Sunday school, so I'm going to skip it because I'd rather talk about God's word. The last thing is that I'm a missionary just like our missionaries. So that's one of the unique things about BCP. We raise funds. And I, I'll just tell you, I didn't come here today to do that. I came here to preach and teach. But I'll just tell you, it's been awesome to see how God provides. You know, I'd pastored for 25 years, and we stepped out to do this with two kids in college. That's not like a great idea, just so you know, as my wife says, to go from paycheck to no paycheck, you know. But God provided. As a matter of fact, there was a widow who gave one of the BCP missionaries many years ago, gave that BCP missionary $50,000 and said she had inherited it. And she said, I want you to use this to impact churches. And so he would loan it to a church plant as they got started and they'd pay it back. And then he'd loan it to a church plant that's building a building and they'd pay it back over time. And he had done that like six rotations over the years. And that church planter's name is Steve Little. He's now the president of BCP. And he took that, and she said, he said, when you get old, if you need to use that for retirement, you just use it for your retirement. Well, when B BCP came to me and said, would you do this? Steve said, I, I want you to start and I want you to work right away. So you can't, can't go raise funds full time. I want you to actually start doing what you're doing. 
So I have this $50,000 and I will give it to you for the first year so that you can make it uh, as you raise support. Is that humbling or what? And God has just supplied. We only used $22,000 of it. God provided other money. So Steve's using that last 22 to start two other things um, that he's burdened about. Um, that's just the kind of vision that BCP has and the kind of vision that our president has as our mission saying he's all in. He's not worried about retirement. You know, he's retired. He's worried about let's let's do what God really wants as a mission. That makes it makes it fun and challenging to serve next to people like that. Go with me to Titus chapter two. <clears throat> in Sunday school, when I taught, I told you you should always know when someone why someone's teaching something. And when it's your pastor, you kind of know that because you know each other. But when a guest speaker comes in, you don't always know why he's doing what he's doing. You know, and that makes it a little dangerous. So I'll just tell you, I picked this passage because it lets me be as bold as my personality. Okay? <laughs> How's that? So you better fasten your seatbelt. I might come right at you this morning a little bit. And it's because the passage does. And this passage is written to Titus by Paul. Obviously, I mean, you probably know this book well. But in Titus 2, look at how it starts out. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's what he says to Titus. Teach, and the word teach there is not the normal word for teach in the New Testament where you, um, you know, didactically unfold something on how you should learn it. It's actually, the word means in plain language, spit it out. It has the idea of just forth, you know, giving it out. And it says, for, but as for you, spit out sound doctrine, he says. And the reason I pick on that word, and I actually use the word declare for it, is because in verse 15 in my translation, the same word shows up. And this time it's translated declare. It says spit out or declare these things. And so I'm looking at you today in this little section I'm going to preach. Paul is telling Titus to go to a local church and do this. I'm coming to you as local church to do this. And, uh, and I'm going to spit it out. I'm just going to give it right at you. He says make sure this comes front and center. And in verse 15, you notice he says a little more than that. He says, spit out these things or declare these things. And then he says, exhort these things, which means to look at you kind of with some firmness and say, you really need to do what's in this passage. And further, it doesn't just say exhort, but it says what? Rebuke, in my translation. And that means that if you're not doing what's in this passage, I'm supposed to look at you and say, you're wrong. You need to change and do what's here if you're not. Now, if that wasn't enough, he uses the word that is in the Great Commission. And he says, rebuke and exhort, spit out with all authority. It's a word that harkens back to Matthew 28, where all authority has been given to the disciples by Christ, who has all authority from the Father. So standing on Christ himself and the Godhead, Titus is to look at you, and I'm looking at you saying, You've got to do what's in this passage. And if that isn't quite enough, he finishes it with, and let no one disregard you. So apparently there's going to be some resistance. Not this morning, right? But I did this in an Iowa church. I preach this sermon almost everywhere I go, first sermon, because I just love what's in this passage. And it's just the heart and soul of what I do as a person. And so I want to spit it out. And I did this in a church, a little bit bigger than you, and it's a healthy church, actually growing children, kind of like you, all kinds of ages. And I got done, and this little old lady comes up to me afterward and says, I can't do that. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. And their pastor was young. He's like 30 years old. And what I didn't know is she was like the matriarch of the church. 
Like her family had given the land for the church to be built on. You know what I mean? But when you travel, you don't know these things. You're no respecter of persons. And so I just looked at her and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you have to do it. It's in the Bible. And she goes, but I'm a widow recently. And I go, good, you'll have even more time to do this passage. And I did say I was sorry about her being a widow. But I, I said, you will have even more time to do this. And the pastor's over there going, oh, my God. That's <laughs> well, she just walked away from me. And I thought, oh, boy, that wasn't good. Um, you know, the cool part of the story is she's a godly lady. Six months later, I found out from one of the assistant pastors there that she was doing the passage. She had taken it to heart. And so I just, you know, I don't know if this is like a preacher or surgeon general warning to this passage. Like, it might come out and grab you. And it doesn't matter how old or how young you are, you're in this passage. Okay, now we lost some of our youngest people. But if you're, you know, I don't know how old people are in this service, but it looks like, like eight or nine on up. And... Uh, uh, or maybe even younger, and uh, so you're in this passage. So pay attention because you've got to do some of what's in this passage. Boys and girls are listed in this passage, and so pay attention, and I'll try and make sure that you don't miss it. Uh, just to give you one way to think as you listen, I give this slide, and I figured I was safe having dead animals on the screen. I wasn't sure. I should have really asked. Actually, these are birds, not animals, so they don't really count, right? So anyway, this screen is to help you picture something, all right? When you're listening to this sermon, I want you to think, Who's in front of me and who is behind me? All right. And uh, obviously this passage is going to have old people in it. Those are the people that are in front of us. Now, some of the old people, they're pretty quick in this room and they go, oh, yeah, well, I'm so old. There ain't nobody left in front of me. Right. <laughs> There's a couple of you a little bit like that this morning. Well, then you just have to band together because you know what? If you're out in front, you're the old people in this sermon. You have everyone behind you that you can impact. So you're actually in the best seat. And you're the most important person in the passage outside of, obviously, Christ. But the, the role or what you're supposed to bring to church is most important. You're not lesser in this passage and shouldn't be in church. It's going to take a different shape. So we have those who are in front of us and those who are behind us. This slide picture this because the guy who's oldest is my friend Ryan Zawicki over there. We do a lot of discipleship hunting things with men, young men. And uh, the guy in the middle is a guy named Zach. And for about 10 years, Ryan, the, the older guy, uh, taught teen Sunday school. You know, because he was willing, so we locked him in the room and didn't let him out for 10 years, pretty much. And, and he's a good teacher, and he's teaching youth Sunday school, and Zach was one of his teenagers, and he's teaching them, and, and, uh, and really thought he was making no progress. And you have to know Zach. He's just a high-powered guy, kind of walk, walks to his own drumbeat, went off to college at Clark Summit University, used to be Baptist Bible College, and almost got kicked out of school because he, like, made a blow dart gun and was shooting fish in a pond with it. I mean, he's just, to me, he's just a good Wisconsin kid. But, uh, but you know, he's not your traditional student, I guess you would say. Um, he got it enabled him to overcome Tourette's. He, he has a neat story. But uh, anyway, there's Zach and going to Bible College. And I'll never forget when Ryan Zawicki preached Zach's installation service at our church as Zach became one of our pastors on staff and said, you know, when I was teaching him in youth Sunday school, I wasn't sure any of it was sticking. But he said, I love calling Zach my pastor today. And you see how Zach had looked to the person who's in front of him. Of course, the guy behind him is Gabe, who is Ryan's youngest son, who now is taught by Zach. Right. I, and sometimes we teach passages. I want you to have a picture in your mind of 
and, and picture it for you personally. Who's in front of you? Who has taught you? And you say, I don't have anyone right now. Then go pick someone. And if someone comes to you after this sermon, by phone, text, or in person, or however it happens this week, and they ask you, will you be the person in front of me? Don't say no. Don't say no. Um, when I was first pastoring at our church, I had five young ladies, single young ladies or newly married that wanted to be discipled. And I was 25 years old. My wife was 25. We knew that wasn't something we could do very well. And so I went to the five oldest ladies at church that I knew were spiritual prayer warriors, asked them, will you disciple these five young ladies? And those five older women all looked at me and said, no, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I tell you what, I'm not a very emotional person on the crying end of the spectrum, but I went home and I cried. My God, how will I do this? I, I, I'm stuck. And I just prayed. And one of those ladies came back to me, Mrs. Patel. And she said, I know I said no, but that was wrong. Mrs. Patel's a straight shooter. I wish you could have met her. She just went home to heaven about three or four months ago. I wish you'd met her because she's just one of those straight shooters. You know, I, I would do ministry things at church. She was one of my superintendents, assistant superintendent, and she would tell me, I hate this idea. And she was an educator. I hate this idea, but we will do it. She submitted. She knew the Bible. She said, I'll submit to my pastor. And we get done with it. She goes, that was a good one. Let's keep doing it. <laughs> but I love Mrs. Pato because she was straight ahead, right? I mean, I could just deal with honesty, and she loved me. She loved our kids. Um, I remember our... Our oldest, you know, church is weird sometimes. He was, he was two, just ready to go into twos and threes room. And we had one of those half doors. The only place you see them are horse stables and churches. Never have quite figured that out. You know what I mean? But I, so I picked the two-year-old over that door and set him down. And the biggest three-year-old in the room came over and shoved him and knocked him right on his backside. And I'm in charge of all the education at our church. And I think, this is not good. I probably should do something. And Mrs. Patel was in the room. My son jumps up. And he's a firstborn. He doesn't even have any siblings. And he punched that kid right in the chest and dropped him. And as a dad, I was kind of a little proud. And on the other hand, I knew that was probably wrong. And I had no idea what to do. And Mrs. Pato looked at me and goes, sometimes things need to happen. You run along, Pastor. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I, Because <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And I say that Mrs. Pato was one of these people that was ahead of me. And ahead of, she became, as she said yes, and began to disciple. And I'm telling you, till the last year she was in church, she would shuffle in with her, with her walker, bent all over. And she didn't have a formal ministry at church anymore. She couldn't come every week. She'd come in, sit down, and a crowd of younger women from all different ages would gather around here to talk with her. And she'd make impact. And hopefully I won't forget, but I want to finish today with one more Mrs. Patel story about the impact she made in our family. Um, who's in front of you? Who's behind you? If you have no one behind you, I don't care your age, there should be somebody. And so you need to think during the sermon, who is that person? Just, just pray, God, give me one person that would be behind me. See, as I pastored for a while, I realized there was no one behind me at church. There were people I'd led to Christ and helped that other people had brought to church. But there was no one that I had met in the community, led them to Christ, and discipled them. And that bothered me. It doesn't seem to fit with, as you go, make disciples. And so I changed my whole lifestyle as a pastor and began to be passionate about how can I have people that are behind me. 
which is what every believer, as mentioned in this passage, really should be doing. Let's go to the passage and dig in. And we look first at who's in the passage. And there's all kinds of people in this passage. I'll just put them here. You can see them as we read. Verse 1, he starts out, and I think he's kind of, Paul's talking to Titus, but in this passage, sometimes you're like, is he talking to Titus or is he talking to me? And the answer is yes. Like you'll see it kind of, the pronouns go both directions. So I just take verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that really is something for everyone in the passage because you're going to see the word sound and doctrine show up. And that word doctrine is the normal word for teaching that we use in the New Testament. So declare or spit out what accords with sound teaching or doctrine. The word sound there, I always think of my German short hair pointer. I have a dog. He's four years old now. And his name is Blitzkrieg. He's a German dog. So I thought that's what he should be named. So Blitzkrieg, Blitz. He is aptly named. Like if he was in this room, he would come running down the aisle and probably jump over the last chair just because it's there uh, to get to me. I mean, that's just what he's like. He jumped over our couch in the middle of our great room that a missionary was sitting on about a year ago and mortified my wife. Someone came to the door. He was asleep on my lap. He just jumped up, took two steps, and launched over the missionary and the couch. Okay, so you got a picture of what this German short hair is like. He's like Michael Jordan, okay? He's just, he's ripped. And when you look at this short hair, I mean, short hairs are all about their nose, but if you don't have hind legs that bulge out with muscles, if you can't see their ribs, if they don't have a deep chest full of lungs so they can run all day, they're not a sound short hair. But Blitzkrieg's a sound short hair. And as my friend says, all that running gear just to carry that nose, you know? And that's what he is. He's, a sound, he's, he's exactly what a short hair should look like. He's saying in this passage, teach what accords with Doctrine or teaching, just spit that out, but make sure it's sound. Don't just, don't be awkward and teach one area of scripture only. Make sure that what you teach fits with the whole of how scripture says it. So it has a balance to it. Sound teaching. And then he goes to the old men pointedly in verse two. And he says, older men are to be sober minded. Literally, they're to be serious. It certainly would mean no drunkenness, but it means serious. Um, my church, I like to laugh. Have you figured that out? I do. And your church does. And I enjoy that about you. It means we like each other too. When people are like that together, it's, it's pleasing. Um, but I, I like to laugh, but I have more than once been cornered by people in my church and said, pastor, you're just too serious. And what they don't know is I go in my office and go, yes, because that means I'm hitting this passage, right? I'm sober minded. We're in a battle. This thing called church and our mission is not some little thing we tack on our week called Sunday. This is who we are as people. Everywhere God has us infiltrate the world with the gospel. And so this is a serious undertaking. Old men, we need to be serious and call people to that. And he says further, you need to be dignified. Now, that's not a word we use all the time, but the root of it is the same root that is often translated godly. But the word dignified with the root here has the idea that when people are with you, their attention is put on God. That's what the word means. So you can just check that. When people walk away from you having spent some time, or maybe, you know, when pastor's been at your church or your house too long, you know, I guess that happens around here. But when he does that, okay, when he walks away or when he walks away from you, do both of you go, oh man, we met with God. We thought about God together tonight, right? That's what dignified is. 
dignified. He says, further, we're supposed to be self-controlled. Matter of fact, if, if you're tired and you can only get one thing today, whether you're an old man or an, my wife says I'm not supposed to say old lady, but it kind of is in the passage, an older lady, or you're a young lady or a young man in this passage, self-control shows up for all of us. And self-control means that my passions are brought within the parameters of what God wants. It doesn't mean that I have to be stoic and have no fun or always be boring. Um, no, there's great intensity and passion in following God, but it needs to be within the context of what pleases God. And I'm a passionate person. I got seven technical follows my senior year of high school playing basketball. In other words, I should have been permanently benched, but my coach did not love me enough to do that. And uh, so I'm a passionate person, and I don't make, I'm still passionate, but I try now to make sure that it's controlled, that it's within the realm of what God wants. We're also supposed to be sound, old men, in our faith, in our love, and in our steadfastness. That word sound is that German short hair word, okay? So my faith needs to be whole. My faith and my belief in God needs to touch every area of my life, not just one area. And I would say, older men, I'm getting older, and I see this in my life. Sometimes we are sound in our patterns, but not our faith. In other words, we do a list of really right things, but it's not faith-based. And when young people look at us or follow us, and they don't see that we are engaged with a dependence upon God, they will not follow him. They'll be distracted from him. They may even look at you and say, I can't be as good or godly or on task as that older guy because they're looking at our pattern and not at our faith. Make sure that you're sound in your faith, not just your pattern. Sound also in love. That means that you have love that is capable of loving every generation in all its strangeness, understanding them and adjusting to them. I don't understand anything about Generation Z. So I read on it, interact, and I try and know how to love. We have a drug and alcohol ministry that meets in our house every Monday. And I've never taken drugs. I don't understand those things. But I have worked to love and understand them. Whatever shape people come to us. With nose rings and dreadlocks and tattoos and whatnot. And when the cross-dressers walked into our church for the first time, I was like, okay, is our love sound? Are we ready to love people? This is where we live. It's our culture, and we should want everyone to walk into church and hear the hope of the gospel. Do you have sound love, or are you demeaning of groups of people because you don't like what's changing around you? Sound. We need to be sound in our steadfastness. I like history. I was reading Churchill a few years ago, four-volume set, or six-volume set on World War II, and he talks about meeting FDR before the U.S. was in the war, and they met in Newfoundland at a secret location, and Winston Churchill sailed in on the Prince of Wales, the state-of-the-art baddest ship that had ever sailed, actually, this huge battleship that Britain had, had made, and they were really the supreme navy at the time. And they sailed in, they met, and all the officers, it went longer than they thought, so they met for church on Sunday. Can you even picture this happening today? And Churchill, who was not a believer in Jesus Christ, nowhere have I read that, but he believed in God. And he picked that old hymn, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, or Hope for Years to Come, picked out scripture, and all the officers from both ships met on the bridge 
of the Prince of Wales, and they worship together. And in his history, there's just one line then, and he says, to think six months from now, half these men were dead. Because the Prince of Wales sank in the Asian theater with almost every man lost. I thought, man, Churchill had serious steadfastness. And he didn't even know Jesus personally. What's my steadfastness like? You know, every generation looks back and go, that generation is wussy. You know, it's kind of what happens as old guys. We look backwards and we kind of think that. And you know what? They are because we're bringing them to that steadfastness as older men. We need to. But old men, don't lose your steadfastness. Because as we age, life gets harder. We can, we can um, wrinkle up, right? We can lose our passions. He says, stay steadfast, old men. Now, I hate to sneak up on the old ladies, but the passage says in verse 3, older women likewise. And what that means is everything I just said about the old men, the women are supposed to do. So let that filter for a second. But the women have a longer list. And all the ladies said, we always do. No. <laughs> and I say that in honor of my wife, okay? She seems like she always has a longer list. And she, I'll be sitting in my chair at night, and she's still moving around, doing things. And I, I'm just like, stop, you know, because I can't keep up. You know, she has a longer list. Why do they have a longer list? Because actually being a woman is quite difficult from what I read and understand. And it's difficult this way. A woman in God's plan has to submit to a husband. It's in the passage. And a woman submits at church because the leadership at church, God has determined is male, primarily. That's God's plan. It's his order. It doesn't mean that a woman's less or a man is more. It's just God's plan. And, you know, it's actually a wonderful place to be in submission. I have a boss, Steve Little. He's an incredibly humble man who listens well. Like, I actually, it's easier to do what I do now than what your pastor does as a pastor. I'll tell you that. Like, I have an easier job. And I have, a, I have to submit to my boss, but he's really easy to submit with because he's very godly. But when a boss, in my case, because masters are mentioned later in this passage, but when my boss, or in your case as ladies, your husband or church leadership, male leadership, is not godly, that is a really tough spot. That takes wisdom that is really deep. Because... It's frustrating to be underneath what isn't happening correctly. So look at the instruction with that in mind. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. They're not supposed to go, those guys don't know what they're doing. And, and we might not, right, at certain junctures, but they're not supposed to be without reverence. He says, they're not to be a slander. They're not supposed to be, oh, brother, look at him. They're not supposed to tear down to their face or behind their back. They're not to be a slave to much wine. Wine in that day was used a lot medicinally because of aches and pains. And let me tell you, ladies have children. My wife did. She had three of them. That's pretty hard on a body. And as you age, a woman's body goes through a ton of stuff that a man has no idea about. And, uh, and so ladies, they, in Paul's day, there, there's toughness that they go through. And they had charge of the pantry. And so it's easy to cover up their struggle medicinally. It doesn't mean we can't use medicine, but, but how much? And how would a young woman or a young man see your confidence in God if you just medicate your problems away? 
There's a balance that's needed there. I think the passage even says it in that way, not given to much wine. He says they're to teach. That's that word doctrine. So women are to teach. They're to teach what is beautiful. That's what the word good there means. And that's why you look at the rest of the passage, both young men and young women are taught by older ladies. And young men are taught by older men in the passage as well. You'll see both. And so, and we know that because the young man is supposed to have good works. Same word. So he's supposed to listen to the beautiful teaching of the older woman so he can do the beautiful work that God intends. So young men, I look at you. You need to listen to your mom and your grandma. Um, and they may not make sense to you. That's often true when someone says something that is wise because we're not yet, we're young. Doesn't mean you're unwise or foolish, but we're, Proverbs calls us simple. We're simple when we're younger. And so we're trying to build that into the beauty that we really need. And so listen to the older women. They're to teach what is good. So let me go to the young men, then I'll go to the young ladies, and I gotta fly here. But young, young men, verse six. Young men, urge the young men to be self-controlled. We've already heard that word. So young men, bring your passion within God's desire. And the young men, show yourself, verse seven, in all respects to be a model of good or beautiful work. So young men, you're supposed to work. A young man took up offering today, I noticed. I love it. That's good work. And there's other things that young men can do. Like you probably should taste some of the cookies next week. I mean, you're going to give them to guests, so we got to make sure they're not poisonous, right? I'm just kidding. I don't know if you're allowed to taste any of them. But you're supposed to do good work in church, okay? Um, and you should be, as young men, you should be going to your pastor, to the older ladies, and say, how can we help? That's what young men should be doing. He says, young men, show in your teaching. So as a young man, you're supposed to teach who? Other young men. And you're supposed to teach them what? Well, you're supposed to teach with integrity, which means whatever you teach from God's word, you need to be doing it. So make sure you're not teaching what you're not doing, but teach that. And you're supposed to, in your teaching, have dignity. In other words, when people are done hearing you teach young men, they should be thinking about God, not you. Make sure the focus is on him, dignified. And you're supposed to have sound, that's that German short hair word, okay? Sound speech that cannot be condemned. In other words, be balanced. Let me tell you, young man, if you're going to be balanced in your teaching, you're going to need to go to an old man before you teach. Okay, do that. He will help you. Because as young men, we really get excited about one area and we need help from the older men to balance that. And why do we do this? Look at, there's a that. When we come to the young men and the young ladies, there's a that in the passage. It says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I'll give one illustration for this. So my sons, um, I didn't want to pay for their college. I thought they should earn it mostly. And so I helped them when they were 14 and 13 start a lawn business. And they started with three yards and my lawnmower. And then, and then they shoveled driveways because we mow for two months and we shovel for 10 in Wisconsin. I don't know about you. Not exactly, but it's close to that. And so, uh, and they actually made a lot more money shoveling, by the way. And they used shovels and snowblowers and they had push mowers and they did this for years. And the last two years, right before we sold the business, or they did, um, it helped them pay for college. Um, they finally got a zero-turn mower. They thought they'd died and gone to heaven. They could actually ride something. And uh, I got a call that first, I don't know, first month they were mowing, this older lady who had a car with a fish with feet on it. It said Darwin in the fish. She wasn't really a Jesus person. She called our house and she said, your boys broke my fence. 
And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, they have a new mower. They don't always know. They're not getting used to how wide it is. Did they, they may not have known that they broke it. They knew. I'm like, okay, well, did they come to you? Yes. Did they tell you we would pay for it? Yes. And I'm thinking, then why are you calling me? So I said to her, so why are you calling me? And she said, I don't understand why they would be honest. <laughs> but that's true. You understand. When you don't have the faith that, she, that what she had faith in does not produce honesty. And so what happened? And I said, so she said that. I said, let me tell you why they're honest. And I talked about Jesus Christ in about three sentences. I just gave the gospel and how Christ is king of their life. And she goes, well, that makes sense. I'll pay for the supplies if you put it up. I'm like, okay. And she hung up. Do you hear what she said? That makes sense. This person doesn't believe in Jesus or God or anything. But because she had watched a young man's behavior, she could not argue with it. Young women, verse 4, B says, train the young woman. It's the word self-control. Literally, you're going to, older ladies have to self-control young women. I get this picture of my daughter when she was 13. And she got kind of emotional at times. And my wife would just gently grab her shoulders and go, Abigail, listen to me, right? Real soft, like, and so what was she doing? She was self-controlling her, right? She was stopping the wildness that was going on. And she was self-controlling her. And she said, you need to train or self-control young women to love their husbands. Note, husbands, uh, your wife does not naturally like you sometimes. And the women are all like, well, I couldn't don't want to be rude. Don't want to slander. But because uh, the word here, love, is not the servant word. It's the word actually where we like them. Okay. And you know what, children? I hate to tell you this, but sometimes your mom doesn't naturally like you either because she has to be trained to like you, which I find weird because I looked at myself. I'm like, why wouldn't my wife like me? <laughs> but there's a long list of reasons. <laughs> and so, but she shows like to me. Why? Because she has been trained or self-controlled by an older woman. She said in verse five here to be, teach them to be self-controlled. I don't know, young ladies, the word self-control gets applied to you twice. I don't know what that means. You study the passage. He says, teach them to be self-controlled, teach them to be pure. No manipulation, young ladies. Teach them to work at home. The word is guard, actually, and it means to guard the home. It doesn't mean someone can't work outside of a house, but it means that they are the person who looks at the well-being of the whole family, and they're to be trained to see what could hurt this family. The first 10 years of our marriage, I did not listen well to my wife in this area. She would say, I think this is going to cause something down the road, and I'm like, that's ridiculous, you know, and she was right. So the last 15 years, I've listened a lot qu more quickly. Um, because God intended for a wife to help me understand how to guard the home. And she was taught that by godly older women. Teach them to be kind and submissive to their husbands. Teach them how to fall in line even when the husband is off. How do you do that? that has to, and you say, I don't know. Then go to an older woman. She'll have plenty of examples and be able to help you. Why do we do this? Again, the, that, that the word of God may not be reviled. My wife and I are at a baseball game because I was American Legion president. And the first three innings, I was doing work as president and talking to men. But by the third inning in Wisconsin, the men are all drunk pretty much. So I went and sat with my wife always. And so we'd sit and enjoy the game and cheer the young men on. And every year, multiple times, people would come to us and say, you two seem like you like each other. I'm like, yeah, we do. And they're like, how does that happen? Because their marriages aren't like that. 
And we just would teach actually some of the words and things right out of this passage to them, right there in the stands. Well, this is what God says, this is what we do. And they're like, wow, well, that works, obviously. See, the word, they never said, well, I don't believe the Bible. Never once. Why? Because they had seen, you notice how I just called my wife a young lady? I did pretty good there, didn't I? Um, but, but my wife, the young lady, was living out what God said. And so the word of God made sense to these men and women. Some of you get to this point in the sermon and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. So let me just give you the trump card that's in it. And I'm going to skip a section. But look at verses 11 through 14. This is the ground or the way that you can live out this passage. And the thing is, if you're a believer, you already have it. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Salvation for all people. So in other words, the grace of God is so huge that all people could be saved. That's how much it is. That's not how it works. Not all will believe, not all. You can teach other passages that balance that. But the bottom line is that's how big the grace of God is. And he says that grace of God that came to you, verse 12, trains you to renounce undignifiedness or ungodliness. So the gospel's work in you automatically makes you pursue being dignified godly people. So as an older person who's been redeemed, you know what it is to be dignified in some sort or fashion, at least part of it. So you have what you need through the gospel to teach a younger person how to be dignified. Because no one comes to Christ without looking to Christ, right? Without believing in him. That's dignified action, to look at him, to believe in him. So even if all you have is that, you have the beginning piece a young person needs to be dignified. He says, it trains us to renounce worldly passions. At our table, every Monday as we're feeding people for this drug and alcohol ministry, even just a few months ago, a young lady was there. Well, I say young, just five years younger than me. And she is coming because alcohol is dominating her life. And uh, she wants to be done with that. And she hasn't come to Christ yet. But she's listening to the gospel and, and to what it means. And she goes, well, if Jesus is going to be my king and he's going to rule me, I, I probably need to get rid of gambling too, don't I? <laughs> we hadn't even, we're not even teaching about gambling. Like how did that, where did, I'm thinking to myself, where did that come from? Well, here's where it came from. It, the gospel itself trains us to renounce worldly passion. So her passion for something else immediately looked wrong to her because of how she was realizing Jesus Christ must be king. It teaches us, look, at it trains us to live self-controlled. The gospel works that in us. Why? Because the spirit of God's in you. So you have self-control that you can train in young people. It teaches us to be upright and to live godly or dignified lives right now. It also, the grace of God's appeared. So we're supposed to live with a, an eternal view, waiting for our hope. Our hope is not in the now or in the United States or in our job, or in our family. It's in the hope of eternity with Christ. You'll have to read the rest, because there's a ton there. My question to you is, if that's the ground, what are you going to speak? You're going to speak that gospel? To whom? I ask you. So what are you going to do? Who's in front of you, and who's behind you? Your pastor is going to come and pray and guide us, but I guess I would feel like we didn't do well with the Word of God if you walk out today I think it'd be good to even write down and say, I think this is the person in front of me that I should go to. They don't even know I've been watching them. They don't even know they're impacting me, but I should go talk to them. Do coffee together, whatever. And then who's behind you? Who is it that you should be reaching to that may be lost, 
They may not know Jesus yet, or maybe they are a believer and you need to build them. And some of you say, well, I have children and grandchildren. That's who's behind me. Absolutely. But God didn't call you just to your family. And so make sure that you build into your life the community and the loss that are all around you. Pastor, if you come.